This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Like many bike racers out there, I ride with a road ID, just in case something bad happens to me and I can't tell people who to call or provide them with information about me, I have this small rubber band that goes around my wrist. Road ID also allows you to personalize it, to put a motto, a saying, something that makes it uniquely you. On mine, I've written the word Riveresco. It's actually my clan's motto from back when my ancestors lived in Scotland before they emigrated to the United States. It's a Latin word, and it has a bunch of potential translations, including to grow green, verdant, to be renewed. But my personal favorite is, I shall rise again. That phrase is synonymous with how I view and approach the world. Taking the heavy blows that life gives you, chin first, and when you get knocked down, you rise up. This is where we are now in 2020. Taking the heaviest blows from a pandemic, cultural strife, and the long, hard struggle towards progress and equality. Sure, we've collectively been knocked down again and again, but each time, we've risen up. That story holds true not just of the individuals, but of our community and the industry behind it. The cycling industry at its core is still an industry. None of this sport would be possible without the businesses behind it providing the products, providing the equipment, providing the clothing. True, all sports have a business element, but for some reason in cycling, we're often blind to the fact that there is this business component. Maybe we've just blurred that line between amateur sport and professional business too much with our approach. In today's episode, we explore that business aspect of our sport and we explore how COVID has impacted it. We tell this story in four chapters and with three different people. First, we meet Ryan Cady of LEL Cycling Apparel, a manufacturer from Southern California. I met Ryan in his office, adorned by guitars and other examples of SoCal life, the week prior to the first quarantines being imposed. It was planned as a standalone episode, But with all the events of the intervening five months, it needed to be updated and broadened. And that's why I turned to trusted sources like Spencer Howe of the Slow Ride Podcast and Simon Marks of Feature Story News for that extra additional content to make this relevant for today. But without further ado, let's get into Chapter 1 with Ryan and Best of the Best. Ryan Cady. I am the founder and CEO of Eliel Cycling Apparel. What is Eliel Cycling Apparel? What kind of company is this? Well, we're a relatively new cycling apparel company born and based in in California. We started six years ago now in the start of uh, 2014 with the idea of, uh, you know, making better quality apparel, which I know is something that pretty much every company I think says when they start. But my issue was with a lot of the team gear. I've grown up, you know, riding and racing since I was uh, 15 years old and been on uh, tons of different clubs and teams. And I was always, uh, you know, searching for, you know, better product, chamois that worked better, didn't chafe, jerseys that fit right, more aerodynamic, 
you know, all those different types of things. And it was really frustrating after so many years of, of riding, you know, not really having a choice, you know, getting, uh, you know, being dictated by whatever my club or team sponsor or, or just provider might've been that I couldn't get stuff that was better and, and equivalent to what I viewed as the top of line product on the market that you might just buy in a store that wasn't custom. So the idea was really to find the right materials and, and processes that could create a custom apparel company that could provide that kind of attention to detail level quality that I wanted and that I knew was out there, but just didn't seem to be provided by the, um, all the various suppliers that I had used over the years. So that's really where the idea was born, was just to make better quality apparel. And then also, you know, I did have in the back of my mind as well that, you know, I wanted Eliel to be a, you know, a heritage cycling brand at some point. Most of the heritage brands are, are you know, in Europe. And uh, I just think that there's so much to offer having, you know, grown up and raced in, in California and experienced so many different disciplines here um, and lived here since I was in eighth grade. Um, it's such a hub. I mean, there's fashion, there's technology, you know, we have obviously the outdoors here. It's such an amazing place to to live and, and um, participate in our sport. So I really uh, think that it was a great, it's a great, great place to, uh, you know, to start a business like this and also to, you know, to pull from the culture here. I know we're here to talk about custom work that you're doing with ButcherBox Cycling. But one of the things we need to talk about is Eliel's brand. Its line has this incredibly dynamic line of branded clothes that I can buy, you can buy, anybody coming off the street can buy and wear. Why do you think that there has been such a rise in the market for branded clothing? Because when I started riding in the sport 20 years ago, you bought your club kit and that was it. You had a few custom, non-custom providers, but like the quality was pretty low. In the last five, six years, with companies like Elio, there's been this rise in very high quality, long-term wearable clothes that don't have my club logo on it. Why did this market suddenly emerge? Well, I think there's a number of different reasons, but a couple that that come to mind are one, just knowledge, uh, you know, knowledge of the product. I'm not sure necessarily that the custom product has gone down over the years. I just don't think it was ever really that great to to start with. And I think the materials you know, the raw materials, the the fabrics that we buy primarily from top suppliers in, in Italy, Switzerland, the quality of the materials have, has gone up. The quality of the chamois that are, you know, developed by our partner, um, Elastic Interface, I mean, they are much higher quality than what <laughs> what we were what we were able to to buy back in the days. So I think the raw materials have gone up. And then I think it just kind of took some people to 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 say, look, I mean, you know, this stuff can be used in, in custom as well. We don't have to race to the bottom and put out a, you know, a mediocre product because we're trying to hit a really low price point, which I think is where a lot of people went. For me, the sustainability of, of a product is, is super important as well. If we spend 10 extra dollars on material, you know, or whatever it is, the product lasts a year longer than our competitors that's a that's an amazing product and that's going that's that's more sustainable. So I think if you look at what's happening in the industry sustainability is definitely, you know, a major thing that we all need to be looking at. I think that's one driver. If it's built right, it also fits better and performs better. I think people have just are starting to figure out that that's out there and I think also, you know, the changing scene in terms of there's less road racing going on, unfortunately. Uh, I grew up in that system. I, I think I came in in the heydays when, you know, uh, I got into it right when Greg LeMond won the tour. You know, that uh, surge uh, in the market was there. And then obviously when Lance came in, you know, that was a massive uptick in, in road cycling. And that was probably the biggest that it's ever been and maybe will be in this country. 
Unfortunately, it's just in this country, the road scene is kind of starting to, to slip a bit. And with, you know, the rise of other amazing events, which I love to do as well, the gravel events, Grand Fondos, things like that. So I think there's just a shift. In, and I think there's less emphasis on being on a team because of that. You don't have to be on a team. You don't have to, you know, start with six riders on your team or whatever. There's not teamwork involved in a lot of those events. It's really more about just going out and having fun and participating. You know, if you're not on a club or team, you're just going to go out maybe and buy something and you're going to look for something that's going to be that's, you know, I think a lot of people, if you're, you know, if you're in tune with your equipment, you're looking for something that's high quality, that's going to last and it's going to perform. You know, if if the, you know, if the garment lasts and holds up, it also typically will perform better because it keeps its shape. It keeps its compression. Uh, it feels better on the bike. Right. And if you feel better on the bike, you're going to want to go ride more and, and be comfortable when you're out doing hundred mile, you know, gravel grinder or whatever it is. And you're on your bike for six to 10 plus hours that some of these events are on. I mean, you really notice it if your equipment doesn't work and if your, if your gear doesn't fit right and doesn't work right, you know, it's a big difference. I was introduced to your company about two years ago. At that point in time, I knew it was a Southern California company and I knew it was a company that could make really good hot weather clothing. Since then, you've expanded your pro your product line. Your product now covers gravel, adventure riding. It's good for bike packing. You've got bibs that have cargo pockets in them. What is the space that you're trying to fill as a company? Is it this is your one-stop shop or are you going to be focused on one aspect of the sport? I mean, I think we would like to be, you know, a one-stop shop for all those disciplines. I mean, I uh, I grew up, you know, doing, you know, criteriums and in, in the in the local road cycling, but I got into doing track racing. I've done mountain bike racing at different points. Now I do the gravel stuff. Um, I just started, you know, getting into the NICA high school mountain bike league with my daughter. I mean, I find joy in all of them. You know, I think just being on a bike, whether regardless of the discipline, you know, is is amazing and, and fun. And so, you know, I want to be able to provide apparel for all those conditions, right? I don't want to have to obviously go <laughs> look at somebody else's apparel when I have a company, you know, to do the things that I want to do. So, you know, that's, uh, that is where we're focused. I think bringing the same philosophy that we did when we started with our very first, you know, custom specific gear, we put that into everything that we're doing. So when we make a, a cargo bib for gravel to have, you know, I mean, it's, it's purpose built. We want the same kind of quality and longevity in that product. Um, and we want it to work. So, you know, more pockets, obviously there's more storage. You got to carry more stuff on those longer rides. So let's make that work as, as good as our race bibs do, uh, with those extra features. If we can make the product and we can make it, you know, the best that we can, and it allows people to enjoy their riding better. I mean, that's, that's what we want to do. The source of the word Elio, where does that name come from? Well, it's my middle name, you know, obviously given to me, um, is my great grandfather's name. So it's a, it's a family name. And, uh, you know, we're just looking for something unique to name the company in the apparel space. It's very hard to find something that you can actually uh, trademark because, you know, you're not just in cycling apparel. I mean, it's the entire apparel industry. So if there's a name, a clever name you can think of, it's probably out there. And so also, you know, we kind of were inspired too by, you know, designers that use, you know, their, their personal names or things like that. My original partner, Derek and I, you know, we were kind of looking at, you know, our names and Eliel just has a nice ring to it. But then also, you know, as we kind of thought about it, it's a biblical name. It means God of my God, El is God in, in Hebrew. And so we also translated that into the best of the best. And that's really what we strive to be uh, as a company. And so that uh, that really stuck. We did a factory tour with the Butcher Box men and women the other day, and it was incredible to walk into the actual factory and to see the process 
beginning to end of assembling garments. And I think that so many of us go, oh, this is clearly an industry that's mechanized, that has very few human beings, it's just robots. You have real people handling every garment that you have. There are multiple hands that go onto every garment. What's the culture of the company like as far as its commitment to both success and to its people? Well, I think the fact that we decided to start you know, a factory in California probably sells, says most the most about it. I wanted to have close control over it, not only to learn the process, but to control it and and not be you know dictated to by you know an outside uh, an outside factory, but also to control the conditions and everything. I mean, I think you know one of the things that I wanted to do you know with my previous two businesses was to have a good working environment and create you know a place to work that people can be proud of you know I wouldn't want anyone in my company to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself you know when we started this we did a lot of that stuff ourselves you know my partner Derek and I we were you know we were in the back cutting materials and printing and setting up those processes and learning it you know, so we did it before other people came in uh, and did it after us. So we learned how it all works. And there's a lot of respect. I think when you go through that process, there's a lot of respect for what people do and the differences that it makes. I mean, when you make a lot of mistakes, you know, when you're starting and and you have to fix them and figure things out, and then you kind of get to that right quality and you realize what it took to, to find those different, those tweaks, it gives you a much better appreciation for what, you know, everybody in that factory has to do every day. And, uh, you know, and I don't think you can, I don't think you can produce a product at the quality that we do without, you know, have, without people having pride in what they're doing. And so the people that make it are, are here. And so they see us and they see us, even if they're not cyclists themselves, which some of them have converted <laughs> to, to, to cycling since we've started, which is great. It's awesome to see. I mean, when you're, when you're part of the process of making it and you actually go ride it, I mean, that's an amazing thing, but they see what we do every day. And, you know, the athletes come in and they interact with the staff, like we did with that factory tour. And they realize, you know, they, I think it's a, you know, they realize that this, is something that that people love to do you know i mean it's not of course it's not saving the world but it, it does you know bring happiness to people it gives people a release from their their day-to-day i mean that's why we all ride bikes is is to be out there and and uh to uh you know to be in nature and and be with our friends and and uh you know and try and be fit and in those things and i think uh you know they see the joy that uh the gear brings i mean it's you know when you have a great piece of cycling gear it makes you want to get on your bike. It makes you want to ride longer. You know, it makes you want to uh, to wear that piece. So I think they have a lot of pride when they when they see that and it comes through when they're when they're uh, seeing customers and and uh, you know and also when when people come in and appreciate the fact of what they do <laughs> when they can see it. We'll hear more from Ryan Katie in chapter four of today's episode, but right now we need to turn to the broader picture. But before we even get into chapter two, the work that we do here on the Wide Angle Podium is listener supported. So those of you out there who've got the capacity to donate and support the great work that this show and some of the other shows on the network like the Grodio, Cyclocross Radio, the Slow Ride Podcast, Consummate Athlete, Bike Shop CX, and so many others are doing is through your donation. So if you go to the WideAnglePodium.com website, click the donate button, you can target the money that you donate to specific shows that you like or to the network as a whole. And I promise you, 
the five, ten dollars, or whatever it happens to be that you donate towards the network goes to those people who are trying to make this content, and it really does matter. Any donation that you can give to this podcast or to the network as a whole is so incredibly appreciated. Now, chapter two, the bigger picture. This show is not about politics. This show is not about economics. But unfortunately, because the time we live in, it has to be about those things. It can't just be about crit racing, and it can't just be about road cycling. It needs to be about how our sport is reacting in the world that we currently live in, and we can't talk about the way that cycling is reacting without talking about the politics and how the economy worldwide and in the microcosm that is the United States is functioning. I'm not equipped for that, which is why I've turned to a resource who truly is equipped for that, and that is my neighbor, Simon Marks. We've been having these wonderful quarantine chronicles where we get together on bistro tables at a perfectly appropriate social distance. We pour ourselves a respectable size whiskey or scotch, depending on where you're coming from, and talk about the issues that we're facing in the world. And I thought it was a phenomenal opportunity for me to get him in front of the microphone and answer some of the questions that we need a bigger picture perspective to look at. Well, I am Simon Marks. I am the president and chief correspondent of an independent broadcast news agency called Feature Story News, and I live in Washington, D.C., where I've been based uh, now for nearly 29 years, which is a very long time to be in Washington, D.C., but has gone like the snap of a fingers. You are a legitimate professional journalist. You've been doing this your entire life, as opposed to me, who's been moonlighting in the world of journalism for the last year. Yes, although I think it's fair to say, Rob, that the uh, gap between legitimate journalism and those of us who moonlight uh, has considerably narrowed over the last few years. And certainly if you take a look at some of the uh, reaction that I get on Twitter from some of my coverage in various parts of the world, you'll find that there are plenty of people out there that don't think that my journalism is as legitimate as I think that it is. But yes, I've been doing this for a very long time. It's the only thing I've ever really known being a TV and radio news reporter and uh, I do it for a whole variety of international news channels and radio stations ranging all the way from networks here in the US all the way to radio stations down in New Zealand and pretty much everywhere in between. What part of journalism are you primarily focused on because we know that you're not a cycling journalist. <laughs> I am definitely not a cycling journalist. You are absolutely correct in that uh, assertion. Uh, I mean, inevitably, I am spending an enormous amount of time now, as I am every four years, focused on the American presidential election and trying to report it and interpret it for audiences that are watching from afar. And so they're not as deeply mired in the details of every single 
twist and turn uh, of the Washington DC news cycle. So I'm trying to provide them with a kind of panoramic overview of what is undoubtedly going to be an extraordinary 90 odd days left in America's presidential race. But when I'm not uh, tied up covering uh, the race for the White House, I'm reporting all sorts of things from all over the United States. Politics has never been a huge focus of of this particular podcast or of basically the cycling industry as a whole. But because politics have become omnipresent in our life with the response to the coronavirus, with trade wars that are happening between the United States and China or other countries around the world, politics are now an issue that we need to deal with. So here we are, five, six months now into the coronavirus pandemic. How hard has this virus and its response impacted the U.S. economy on a a broad scale level? Well, I mean, there is no way of talking about it without comparing it to the Great Depression. And there is every indication that this is just as bad as the economic downturn that hit the United States in the 1930s and may be even worse. Because remember, we are not by any manner of means out of the COVID-19 woods yet. Uh, You can see what's going on in places like Texas and Florida and Arizona and California That is not a second wave of COVID-19 infections. It is merely uh, an extension of the first wave. And all the public health uh, officials with decades of experience here in Washington, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, insist that we won't actually witness the second wave until winter arrives. So the impact that this has already had on the economy, clearly devastating. We saw record falls in gross domestic product in the second quarter, down nine and a half percent over the first quarter if you annualized the impact of that uh, on the uh, GDP of the country on an output economic output here you'd be looking at a collapse of more than a third in economic output over the course of 2020 it, it, we may not get to a situation that is as bad as that because with every sort of relaxation of covid-19 restrictions you do see an uptick in economic activity but the problem is that we're now seeing restrictions being reimposed because they have to be reimposed in some of these states where the infections are now aflame and as a result of that what had been for a brief moment uh, a seeming improvement in the employment situation in the United States is once again dire. I mean, every single week since March, more than a million people have signed on for unemployment benefits for the first time, and those numbers are released weekly. So every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning, you get the numbers of people who the previous week signed on for unemployment benefit for the first time in their particular working experience. That number has not dipped below a million since March and now is beginning to tick upwards again. Last week it was 1.4 million. The markets were hoping that the number by now would be lower than that. Now, not all of those people who have signed on for unemployment benefits since March are staying on unemployment benefits because some of them come off as they get rehired. And of course, programs like PPP, the Payroll Protection 
program allowed companies to furlough workers and essentially not lay them off but keep them on the on the payroll so some people have of course gone back to work but the threat that covid-19 poses to the economy domestically is devastating unless and until it can be brought under control because you're going to see these kind of rolling reimposition of restrictions and shutdowns as uh, new uh, cases of infection spiral upwards in various parts of the country and that's not going to be something that is over this year and it may not be something that's over next year unless uh, by some miracle there is not just a, a vaccine or therapeutics that emerge that are effective against the virus, but that can actually be produced in numbers that are sufficient to inoculate not just the whole of the United States, but ultimately the whole of the world, because you can't can't have this thing existing anywhere. Uh, at a time when travel networks are going to be restored and anything approximating normality is going to return to American society because otherwise, of course, it can so very, very easily return to American shores. So I I think we're in for a really, really long haul here. In terms of supply chains, you know, it, it is much easier for politicians to say we want things to be made in America by Americans than it is for them actually to achieve that. If you look at the presidential campaign that we're witnessing, there's not a lot of daylight between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on this issue of getting things brought back home to be made in the United States. But as I'm sure anybody that deals with their bicycle on a daily basis knows, there are all sorts of component parts that aren't made in the United States, just as the computer that I'm sitting in front of now has got all sorts of components that aren't made in the United States and are very unlikely to be made in the United States at any point soon. So uh, again, absent a national approach to this that says there is a way of flattening these curves, there is a way of beating the disease back until such time as therapeutics and vaccines are available. In the absence of that, we're living in a kind of Wild West free-for-all as far as COVID-19 is concerned, and that's making the economic recovery far more difficult to attain. This notion that there's going to be a V-shaped economic recovery, you know, that the economy contracted very rapidly, but very rapidly is going to expand. You hear a lot from the White House about all the pent-up demand that is out there economically is simply not borne out by the facts. I mean, consumers are nervous. They don't want to go back to the shops. They're not ready in many parts of the country to go back to restaurants. They're putting off big-ticket purchases because they're worried about their employment prospects and uh, the fact that in many cases they're going to be having the kids at home with them for the foreseeable future because schools are going to be uh, operating on distance learning only. You know, it's very, very difficult to see how you bring the country out of its economic tailspin unless and until you get a grip over the virus. So let's look specifically about how we are doing what we are doing, how companies are trying to mitigate the challenges that they're facing. And in chapter one of this story, we spoke with Ryan Cady of LEL Cycling Apparel. His company is a custom and branded line of cycling apparel that makes top quality garments in Southern California. 
in March, he had to send his workforce home because of California's quarantine provisions, their lockdown provisions. In the interim, a skeleton force did start doing some things like making face masks and trying to complete some basic orders that they had, but they've reopened. They've got to restart everything. They've got to reestablish supply chains. They've got to reestablish their workforce under new conditions. How are these types of challenges forcing companies to spend more money, forcing companies to rethink business strategies? Well, I mean, first of all, there's the very basic issue, which is how are you going to make a workplace COVID safe? So whether you're operating a facility that's making equipment for the cycling industry or you're talking about uh, a real estate company uh, somewhere in the United States, I mean, these workplaces are going to have to be made COVID safe at a time when the science is still trying to understand just how this virus spreads. So every single week we seem to be learning more about the extent to which COVID-19 can spread through the air, the extent to which office uh, and factory air conditioning systems do not necessarily pose any kind of protection against COVID-19 unless these very powerful HEPA filters uh, are installed, for example. So there's the basic issue of workplace safety from a public health perspective which also has an impact on industrial relations. One of the reasons why so many school teachers are nervous about going back to work is because they don't want to catch COVID in the classroom and bring it home and spread it to their elderly relatives. The same is absolutely going to be true about any manufacturing industry in the cycling sector. How can you be absolutely certain, to the best of your ability, that you're shutting the virus out of the workplace? And that becomes not just a public health issue, it becomes an economic issue. The costs of doing all of this are large and substantial, uh, so those are going to start bleeding their way into pricing structures for companies that have to determine how they're going to absorb those new costs and, to some extent, pass them on to consumers. For employers, uh, it's a risk. All of this is risky. I mean, I'm myself an employer, and making the decision about when I should tell my staff that it's safe to return to our office here in Washington, D.C. or our office up in New York City is a very, very nerve-wracking issue because you're not just dealing with your own corporate future. You're dealing with the health and welfare of the people who work for the company and you've got uh, moral and ethical obligations uh, towards those people and to their families. So at a very base issue, this is an expensive proposition, putting things back to work. Then there's the question of the role of the dice that you're taking if you're operating in a state like California, where in parts of the state, COVID-19 is moving in absolutely the wrong direction, which is why Governor Gavin Newsom keeps having to reimpose restrictions and terminate the easing of relaxation. So you could find yourself reopen one week, And the next week or the next month, the uh, local authorities may be knocking on the door saying, I'm very sorry, we've got to close everything down again. Uh, This is not, as Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, explained time and again over the last few months, this is not like a light switch where you throw the switch 
up and you turn the American economy back on. Uh, this has to be done in an incredibly carefully calibrated way to reflect the shifts in public health tides that we're all witnessing in many of these key states. So it is going to be very, very difficult on a daily, much not even on a weekly basis. It's going to be incredibly difficult on a daily basis confidently to predict whether you're going to be able to stay open, whether you're going to be able to make the things that you're planning to make and sell the things that you're planning to sell. And in economic terms, you know, what is the most valued aspect of any business's environment? It's stability. Businesses crave stability. And this is a very, very unstable time in which businesses are now having to operate. Once the product is produced, once it is sold, once the purchaser gets it, they need to use it. And in our world, using it means going places. It means travel, internationally, domestically. For the United States, international travel, just not going to happen. Our passports are, are basically useless. But domestically, we have seen the rise of bike races happening in different parts of the country that are are or are not safe to be in. For example, in Georgia or Pennsylvania, there's a a race this past weekend in New York. What are we seeing uh, as far as the limits on movement of people domestically throughout the United States? Well, the first thing that we're seeing just over the last couple of weeks is the willingness of a larger number of jurisdictions to impose quarantine requirements on people traveling to them from other jurisdictions. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that you are a cyclist here in Washington, D.C., and you decide to go and compete in a race in Florida. Well, upon returning to Washington, D.C. now, you will be required to uh, self-isolate for 14 days. Um, and to report any symptoms that you show during the course of that 14-day period. Now, there are, of course, all sorts of enforceability issues relating to this. I certainly haven't seen vast numbers of uh, officials walking the streets of Washington, D.C. and knocking on doors to make sure that people are self-isolating. But responsible members of society will want to heed those recommendations and those requirements by the states in which they reside. And certainly, if you live in New York or you live in New Jersey or Connecticut or uh, Washington, D.C., parts of the eastern seaboard where, you know, enormous efforts have been made to try and control COVID-19 over the last four months, the local authorities there are doing what they can to avoid an uptick of infections from being imported into their territory from places like Texas and Arizona and Florida. And, you know, it's a very long list of states now that many of these other states are requiring uh, you to isolate uh, yourself for 14 days if you if you travel from them. Uh, there is also just the practicality of travel at this point. I mean, the airline industry is uh, mixed in its approach. You can look at airlines like American Airlines, where the CEO is rolling the dice and saying, right, we're going to return to full service. We're going to put as many planes in the air as we possibly can. It's time for Americans who want to travel to have the opportunity to travel. But you can flip the coin and you can see Delta, for example, which is taking a much more cautious approach 
the international perspective, as you say, Rob, is is completely and utterly shot. And I can't imagine that there will be very many parts of the world where Americans are going to be welcome to visit um, for as long as we're witnessing the kind of infection levels that we're witnessing and for as long as the country is indeed the most infected nation on earth. Uh, you know, why would anybody want any of us uh, to enter uh, their countries? And in those places that you can go to, I mean, theoretically, because I'm a British passport holder, I could fly tonight to London. But as soon as I got there, I would also be required to engage in 14 days of self-isolation and quarantine, which is, by the way, enforced. So this is, you know, the, the days of grabbing your bike and saying, right, I'm going away for the weekend to participate in a race in Georgia. Uh, You know, I'm leaving on a Friday. I'll be home on a Sunday night. You know, first of all, it's going to be very complicated getting there and getting back. And secondly, the chances are when you come back, you won't be able to leave the house for 14 days thereafter. These issues of tariffs have reemerged. We thought we had shelved this discussion. We thought the trade wars were an issue of the past, but obviously Congress has to renew and re-up tariffs periodically. And so we're looking at tariff issues with China, which is a huge provider of cycling goods, a huge manufacturing source. And you also have to look at European tariffs because a lot of our high and high quality products, including clothing and, and wool and materials like that, are coming from Northern Italy or coming from France. Where are we on tariffs and trade wars? Well, I think that we are in the middle of a very, very complicated period. Uh, Let's start with China. President Trump says he's no longer interested in pursuing a second phase of trade negotiations with the Chinese. He is, as you know, furious with China, accuses them of uh, not doing anything to prevent what he calls the China plague. So I think with China, all bets are absolutely off until November the 4th, when we all look at the papers and hopefully on that particular day, if it's not that day, maybe a few days later, learn who has won the American presidential election. The Chinese are are not going to engage. The Americans are not going to engage um, until I think we know who's going to be sitting in the White House for the next four years. With the European Union, things are more complicated. Uh, There are ongoing negotiations and discussions underway. Uh, The president relentlessly accuses the Europeans of having taken advantage of the United States for decades. And there is no question that there is some truth both to that claim and to the claim that uh, for decades China uh, took advantage of the United States. I think that he has successfully altered Uh, the language of these conversations and has paved the groundwork for a more muscular approach towards trade negotiations over the next four years, even if it's Joe Biden who's sitting in the White House uh, as opposed to President Trump. So I don't think we should imagine that January rolls around, there's an inauguration and it's actually Joe Biden who's being sworn in. And then, you know, a month later, all is right in the world of trade negotiations because the nature of these conversations, I think, has now shifted and there's enormous pressure on the Democrats as well not to let the Europeans or the Chinese uh, off the hook. There's another wrinkle in all of this. Britain needs a bilateral trade agreement with the United States because of the British decision to leave the European Union. 
there may be some opportunity there for manufacturers of cycling equipment from the UK uh, actually to steal a bit of a march on their Chinese and European competitors, given the special relationship that that allegedly exists uh, between Washington, D.C. and London. And there's a further wrinkle in the China issue, which, of course, is Hong Kong. And with Hong Kong now no longer being exempt from the tariffs that apply to the Chinese mainland, you've got all sorts of manufacturers and all sorts of companies based in Hong Kong asking themselves whether they can stay there. And the flip side of that coin are places like Singapore, who are seeing the demise, potentially, of Hong Kong as a global financial and manufacturing hub as an opportunity for them. Malaysia is seeing the same opportunity. Vietnam is seeing the same opportunity. And given what we were saying earlier about the difficulty of bringing all of these supply chains back home to America, it may well be that you find over the next few years uh, new manufacturers rising in some of those countries that remain within the Asia-Pacific region, but just are not called China and don't suffer from the same uh, associations China is going to be dealing with, I think, here for several years to come in terms uh, of the trade negotiations that it has to uh, engage in, regardless of who's in the White House. So there may be new manufacturers that rise in places like Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, other locations in the Asia-Pacific Rim uh, that come to fill the gap in supply chains that may end up being created by a tariff-heavy or delayed free trade uh, agreement uh, series of, uh, of talks and negotiations. Before we get into Chapter 3, let's hear from our friend Bill at Cyclocross Radio about what he and the folks at the Media Pit have in store for you. Wow, what an episode. That was amazing. When that one person said that thing and then the other person totally like set them straight. Oh man, that was great. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that again. But hey, since I have your attention now, hello, cyclocross friends, new friends and old friends and soon to be friends. My name's Bill. I host another show on the Wide Angle Podium podcast network it's called cyclocross radio and we talk to the biggest stars in cyclocross and even the medium stars in cyclocross and some of the soon-to-be stars in cyclocross we also have a panel discussion we call the media pit with my buddy zach and michael where we go over all of the new rules that might be coming out and the calendar situations and races that happen it's a great time it's a great conversation we built an amazing community that we want you to be part of so go to wideanglepodium.com become a member there then go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to cyclocross radio do it do it now cyclocross friends And now back to Chapter 3, The Wide Angle. This sport is interconnected, not only in the sense that riders and people routinely cross from organization to organization, but also in the sense of interdependence. Apparel manufacturers rely on racing, 
for marketing and product development. That spurs advertising dollars in media, which helps promote bike companies and component manufacturers, which in turn provide support back to pro teams. COVID has interrupted this cycle. And even before that, the ongoing trade wars threatened to interrupt supply chains and wreak havoc on the marketplace. We are joined now by fellow content creator and lifelong bike industry insider, Spencer Howe, who's here to help us focus out onto the full field of view and what he and other folks like him are doing to turn lemons into lemonade. My name is Spencer Howe. I am from Minneapolis, currently living in Boston for the last six years. And uh, I am a host, a co-host on the Slow Ride podcast and uh, founder of the Wide Angle Podium Network. What is the Slow Ride podcast? That is a hard question to answer. The Slow Ride podcast is always kind of changing. It's a conversation that uh, me and my co-hosts, Matt and Tim, have been having since we met, basically, probably 20 years ago now. We just started recording it maybe five years ago, and we sort of touch on all things bike, uh, mostly racing-focused, but definitely bike culture and etiquette and all that stuff. So we delve into the hot-button topics and uh, try to solve solve problems for, for listeners who write in and, um, and just kind of recap, uh, our take on, uh, what's going on in the cycling world. The reason we're here today is to talk about finances, money, the impact that the coronavirus has had, you know, we're what, five, six months now into the coronavirus. And we just heard from Simon Marks, a journalist with FSN, about kind of the macro level financial situation that the world and the United States are facing. I want to dial in on the situation inside just our part of the industry. So let's just talk cycling media. How has this coronavirus pandemic impacted the real world cycling media industry? I mean, I think it's impacted it greatly. I think would uh, would be putting it lightly. If you're looking at cycling media, it covers events. It's an event-based platform, whether that's bike racing, which is obviously not happening, whether that's industry events like Sea Otter or uh, Eurobike, stuff like that. Those are not happening. Everything's canceled. Everything's on hold. There is very little to report on. So the well dried up like immediately, like instantly. And that threw everything kind of for a loop. And not only that, but your listener base or your reader base all of a sudden had a lot of other things on their plates to think about. Um, so even if even if you were able to get some content out there, the numbers were just falling off a cliff through March and probably part of April. It's been slowly recovering, um, which is which is good and kind of expected as people kind of settle in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a wild ride. One of the things that we've noticed during the course of this pandemic is how interrelated the different aspects of bike racing and cycling are. With the absence of racing, riders and teams have had to turn to different ways of fulfilling contractual obligations. So like if you look at Lachlan Morton from EF, 
the guy's been crushing it on social media. He's been giving his team, EF, the most views that they can possibly get given the situation. But then you look further down that chain, not just at the team specific, but, you know, cycling apparel providers, bike manufacturers, all these people relied on the racing for their marketing and for their advertising. How do you see us as an entire unit coming out of this pandemic? Should it ever actually go out the door? That's a interesting question because, um, you know, the, the, the events will come back and things like that will come back. But I do think that the media landscape will be a lot different than it was before. It's not going to be spitting out race results and a, a two paragraph uh, recap 20 minutes after the race ends is I think there's going to be less importance on that and more, more kind of like what we've been doing in the network the whole time, which puts us in a, a good spot, which is kind of that community based a little more lifestyle stuff, a little more, I don't, I don't know the word for it, but a little less uh, reactionary and a little more, I don't know, involved or, or just like keyed into the listeners or the readers more. It's uh it's interesting because the slow ride has never particularly been like a race recap show or anything. Um, we, we touch on that stuff, but mostly it's cultural stuff. Mostly it's a uh, lifestyle questions, fashion questions, stuff like that. And we are sort of the outlier. We are the only ones kind of doing that. And now like all the major media is sort of in our, our playground, you know, which is fun because it's fun to see what they're coming up with compared to what we've been doing. And, uh, there's room, there's room for it. And obviously I think it's been missing for a while, but uh, yeah, I think the media landscape is going to be completely different uh, going forward. We've seen this growth in community. You had just mentioned that we've heard stories, anecdotal about how bike shops are under stress because they don't have any product. Bikes are getting sold out at record levels. And we're not talking just about the five six thousand dollar bike we're talking about the six seven hundred dollar bike so there's new people in the sport we see them on the road we see them out on the trails what is it going to take for us the people who've been in the sport for years the people who've been in this industry for years to keep that good feeling extended throughout life as things return back to normal that's a tricky one too because yeah we have Tons of new riders, um, recreational for fitness and, and commuting. The barrier to entry was lowered by the pandemic, you know, freeing up people's time, letting them work from home if, if they had that option or sort of making it a little easier to find the time to ride for fitness or get a workout in. Some people, that was the only option. Like you got to stay within certain amount of miles of your house and can't leave your neighborhood. So, okay, well, I'll buy a bike and ride around a little bit. And so, yeah, maintaining that is going to be very dependent on location. You know, like I think the infrastructure in certain cities is far superior to others. So that's going to be a big thing. And if cities can capitalize on that while there's less traffic on the road and while there's a big interest, I think bike advocacy, advocacy groups are you know, obviously working on that right now, trying to take advantage of, of what they can. 
you know, making it easy, keeping the, the barrier to entry low is, is critical and finding out how to connect those new folks with the community that we have, which I think is, is a very strong, very good, passionate community about bikes, but uh, sometimes uh, a little hard to find. You know what I mean? So um, putting ourselves out there more and uh, making sure we're reaching out where we can. We have these new riders that are out there. We've got people who are interested. We just can't get them bikes. You know, we're dealing with trouble with shipping and supply chains and tariffs coming from different trade wars that we've got going on. Why is this happening right now? Yeah, this is interesting. I don't know if a lot of people are aware of exactly how the bike industry works from a supply chain uh, uh, view, but it's very broken. I don't know if it's unique necessarily, but it's sort of uh, like if you're familiar with skiing or other sports that are very seasonal, it's similar to those in that the bike shop places an order, you know, for all the bikes they had in 2020, they placed that order in like August or July of 2019. And then those bikes get produced in Asia and shipped over and delivered to the bike shop in February of 2020. And then that's what they have for the year. You know, they maybe get a few fill-ins here and there if they sell out of sizes, but the manufacturers, the bike brands, generally make just about enough to cover all those pre-orders. So what happened is in March and April, everybody all of a sudden wanted bikes way more than normal. Demand shot through the roof and all the bike shops sold out of bikes. And they couldn't even get more because the brands' warehouses were empty and the, you know, the, the, the lead time on those is six months. So it was, uh, it was a mess. And it was uh, one of those things that just sort of was unprecedented. It hadn't happened before. Everybody, everybody, in, everybody from a bike shop employee all the way through to a, an owner of Trek or Specialized or whoever, uh, they all know that the system's a little broken, but nobody has taken the time to fix it. That's how we got there, and um, I, I think the pandemic might uh, be the impetus the bike industry needs to kind of fix that. We've seen some brands like do away with model years recently as well, which was tried maybe 10 years ago and kind of failed, um, but I think maybe it's going to catch on now, so there's a little bit less of this uh, dependency on following kind of the automotive world where new cars come out every year and it's new and fancy. You have this model of supply and logistics that works for cars or, in some cases, works for other durable goods, you know, like appliances. They require a lot of effort and time to make. I mean, making an average carbon frame is a labor-intensive thing. I love how people are like, this is a hand-built bike. Well, my carbon bike is hand-built, too. I mean, literally, somebody laid the carbon, and, and that's how it worked. But you also look at like fashion and the fashion industry, which pumps out new stuff all the time. Their factory is constantly churning because they, they want to do fast fashion, get something out there, you know, just flood the market with different varieties. Is the bike industry being forced to go down the path of like, let's think more prospectively and adopt more of a fashion apparel type? Or is it just going to plot along like an automotive designer? Yeah, Trek can be the GM of the bike industry. 
Yeah, it's it's a tough model to get away from in a lot of ways because, you know, when you buy a track or a specialized or a giant or a Canada or whatever, all those components come from 10 different, 20 different manufacturers. You know, you've got the drivetrain components, you've got the tires, you've got the wheels, you've got the seat, you know, the grips, everything else. So in order to get all those things to the same place at the same time to get them assembled into a functioning bicycle in the manufacturing level is like, that's why they need this lead time in these orders almost a year in advance to sort of plan that out. I don't think it's ever going to turn into a fast fashion style thing, maybe on a very small scale. uh, Some brands will be able to leverage uh, uh, the fact that they are a little more nimble but uh, as far as the big brands, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be GM and Chrysler for a while, I think. But um, they would uh, they would do well to do their best to rethink that. I think. Do you think that planning for twenty twenty one, which is obviously ongoing right now, is that going to factor in the bump that we've seen, or are they just going to call that an aberration and not capitalize on it? That's a good question. I uh, I should talk to some folks in, in the industry and see what their plans are. I would expect that they will plan for a little bit of a bump, but I I would be surprised if they, they're going to want to avoid over-manufacturing uh, because that is that is the fear that everyone has. Is that they're going to lay out a bunch of product and uh, all of a sudden it's obsolete and nobody bought it and, you know, 2021 comes and now all the new bikes are out. So, it's kind of a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy with the the business model now is you have to make you have to get as close to exactly right <laughs> the amount that you're going to sell for what you produce uh, to make it work so it'll be a conservative bump but i'm sure there will be some sort of bump let's talk podcasting cuz it's a topic that you and i share it's something that we love what do we as members of this community need to do in order to stay fresh? There's a lot there to unpack. I mean, content-wise, I think we do a good job. All of our shows bring uh, something to the table that is slightly different than every other show. You know, a fan of the network can listen to everything we put out and not necessarily hear six different versions of the same story, which I think is important, finding, so I guess, finding your niche and, and, really going deep on that. Cyclocross radio is a great example. Consummate athletes, a great example. Like they just know what their show is and they go really deep on it. I think that's a common podcasting problem for a, for a new podcaster would be just not having a focus. I guess the, the, the other thing more network specific is, is just continuing to provide value in what we're doing overall. We are, you know, trying to, explore new avenues all the time. We're trying to figure out how to do more video stuff and and what is going to work, what format is going to be received or understand. I don't know. I don't even know that we're still in the exploratory phase with that, you know? So it's hard to even describe what we need to do because we're still figuring that out, but it's exponentially easier for us to figure that out when you have the type of team that we have set up here with the creators we have um, that are passionate about it, that have 
that have figured out what their voice is and can speak to cycling fans and resonate. So we're going to keep throwing stuff at the wall and, and see what works a little bit. And, uh, and, you know, we, we value uh, the feedback we get from our listeners, which is another great part of being a donor supported network is that people really do feel involved. Like they're part of it. If, if you're giving us $5 a month, you know, you are part of what's making this happen. And that's, that's not blowing smoke. Like, <laughs> like if this whole thing wouldn't happen if, if people weren't supporting it, which is uh, uh, pretty special. Where do we go from here? Because it doesn't look like the virus is going anywhere anytime soon. Cyclocross races are being canceled in Europe, even, you know, the American season's out the door, but we all still have a passion for the sport. We all still have a passion for the activity. How do we keep that enthusiasm? It's tough because uh, without the racing, it cuts out a lot of potential content. It cuts out all the easy, low-hanging fruit content. But the way that we can keep going forward creating content is, you know, the slow ride style is to, we've been leaning a lot heavier lately on listener emails, like people emailing us for advice or questions, or just like, here's a story from my cycling experience that we read on the air and, and, and just sort of talk about. So that sort of involvement for us has been one avenue and for other shows on the network, Grodio and Cyclocross Radio specifically have been just going deeper onto some of the more worldwide issues, more broader social issues that aren't necessarily cycling specific, but that touch on cycling in a tangential sort of way. All the talk, all the couple of episodes and an interview with uh, one of the race promoters for the um, DK event in, in Kansas is, is a good example of that. Like, okay, let's dive deeper into this. Let's explore this. Why is this an issue? You know, what's your side of it? What's, what's our take on it? That was a great, great episode. Great couple of episodes that in a normal cycling season, we might not have had time to, to deep dive into that, to really explore it. We may have mentioned it in passing, talked about it for 10, 15 minutes in a show and then moved beyond it because there's another race to talk about, or there's another event or another interview with a racer to do. So this really allows us time to really kind of explore the space that we're in even more than we normally can, which is interesting. And it's, it's creating a lot of new content. Really. It's, it's scary in some ways because we don't have the old crutches, but in other ways, it's like, ah, we don't have these old crutches. This is great. You know, you got to you gotta glass half full this thing and, uh, and just keep rolling forward and, and figure it out. And now chapter four, Partners. We dive back in with the conclusion of my interview with Ryan Cady of LEL. The decision for a company to partner with a pro team is not just about money. And if it's done right, it isn't even just a simple exchange of services either. Rather, it's about merging visions and working together. That's why the notion of sponsorship is often a misnomer and a disservice for what is actually happening. 
In joining forces with the 2019 USA Crits champions, LEO had a vision for the future. You start this company only five, six years ago, and it's a California-based company, but now you reach across the United States. You you came and did a Ryder House in DC, you've done Ryder Houses in other cities, and you can see that there are just completely random people who are out there riding in Elial gear. And now you're on the cusp of starting the 2020 season with a partnership between you and ButcherBox, arguably one of the best Criterium racing teams in the nation. How does that make you feel? It's an amazing thing. I mean, when we started, it was really just wanting to to make a better product. And, and you know, you're so concentrated on what you're, you know, on just getting the thing started and, and the basics that you're not really thinking long term. I mean, there, there's something in the back of your mind that maybe this could be something like that. But to see it actually happen. And like you said, you know, it's one thing when you know the person that's on the road when I'm local here and I see a person wearing the gear and I know who it is. But it's a whole different thing when I have no idea when that who that person is. And that's really cool because that means that they found us somewhere or or somebody referred them to us or they just saw the gear on somebody else and, and went to our website and, and, you know, gave us a try. Talk about the partnership that's developed between you and ButcherBox. How did this relationship come to exist? Well, I mean, you know, I really got back into watching, you know, the NRC races last year, you know, partly through our, um, uh, we're the official sponsor of the Tulsa Tough uh, series. And and so, you know, and I grew up, I mean, that's, that's what I did as a, as a racer. That was my, my strength was doing criteriums and, and I did uh, the national circuit and a lot of those, a lot of those big criteriums back in the day, but, you know, I've kind of got out of that racing side for myself. And so, you know, it was really um, kind of going to Tulsa and San Rafael is another one that, that we sponsor. And and, you know, kind of getting back into that environment. But I think there was a lot of excitement the last couple of years with Butcher Box and, and, and the Legion team, you know, really bringing some excitement back into the U.S. Criterium scene and really battling it out with each other. And that was really fun to watch. You know, as a company, we strive to be the best that that we can be. But also, we do like to have fun as well. And and that's part of our our brand always has been. I've been on those teams. I know when there's when there's good camaraderie and the riders really enjoy each other, like one, you, you sell out for each other. I mean, you'll go so much harder for your teammate when you have that bond. But then after the race, you know, you can you you know, there's that that fun, that hanging out, that traveling that happens, those long bonds that, you know, are still there and you're calling up your teammate. If in my in my case, 20 years later, you know, you still have those connections. And I see that with ButcherBox. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, that we approached them and 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 started talking with them about uh, about what they're doing is that I think they have, you know, their focus isn't really just about racing. You know, it's about creating this this team and these bonds. And and it's about the people that are in the organization. It's about, you know, telling those crazy stories, you know, of, of these these athletes and, you know, that talking about this sport that we do. I mean, it's it's a little insane sometimes, and especially criterium racing. It's a really special thing. And, you know, um, I really connected with it from my background and what they're trying to do and kind of bring that back and not let, you know, that scene die in this country because I think it's a really, you know, it's a really important part of bike racing here. What does it mean to you as a company and as the founder and owner of a company to sponsor a professional team? Because a lot of us will sit there and say, okay, Clothing provider, clothing manufacturer, 
yeah, it makes sense. Let's sponsor a team and go do what we need to do to make their stuff. But the sense that I get from talking to you, from seeing the way that you work here, is that there is a lot of output on your side to make sure that there is success and that there is satisfaction to the customer. So why why this extra focus when you talk about partnering? You know, the reason that any any you know company would want to be involved with a team like this is that these are the athletes that that push anything to the highest level, right? I mean, they're the ones that are they're putting in, you know, more miles than other people. They're using it in the most extreme conditions. So, you know, those are the important things. But, you know, for us, I think it really is about the reason we're doing it at this point and and we didn't do it, you know, maybe at the start of what we're doing is that you have to be able to interact with the teams and you have to be able to put in the effort on your side too. It's not a, a one-way street. If, if we were just, you know, supplying clothing to them and then that was it, that wouldn't be worth it. You know, we wouldn't want to do that. But what we see in the team and what we talked about with, with Steve and Steven is it's really a collaboration. They want to push our gear. They want to test it. They want to give suggestions to us. And we want to hear that. And we actually want to make changes and adjustments based on that. I mean, we've always done that with our customer feedback, but I think this is just at, at another level. What is a win for you? So many of cycling sponsors, especially the industry sponsors, talk about a return on investment. And I don't know if return on investment means we're making money off of you or return on investment means that we're getting media or buy-in. That doesn't matter for the purposes of this question because I feel like you're going to get a return on your investment. I want to know what a win for you is when it comes down to this relationship with ButcherBox. It's the team being out there in these communities that all these, you know, criteriums are in. It's being in the communities that they, you know, ride and train in every day. And it's them having interactions with, you know, the average cyclist out on the road or on a group ride and exposing them to, to Eliel. And hopefully giving that person that, you know, someone who hasn't heard of Eliel before the confidence to go try it and say, hey, you know what? I saw this, this pro rider was wearing it and man, they looked amazing. And, you know, they said it was great gear or whatever. And they told me something about the company maybe that I didn't know. And then I took a, I took a chance and said, okay, I'm going to try this, this, comp- this six-year-old company's, uh, you know, gear and having that experience. We know that once, you know, somebody tries our gear, I mean, you, you get sold on it. I mean, the quality and the fit and everything is what, you know, we've, we've built this company on and why we're, we're continuing to grow. So, you know, really working with a team like ButcherBox is about touching as many people as we can, you know, through the sponsorship. So them being in their communities, the thing about our sport is they're out training and riding with you know, the average person, like they're not in a stadium somewhere or a secret training facility, you know, uh, working out that the public doesn't see. I mean, you are out in the public sphere. When you go to these races, you know, these NRC criteriums, I mean, you are out on open roads, you know, warming up, training, interacting. So, I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities to be in the community. And I think that's one of the super cool things about our sport. And so that's really what we're hoping for from the team. Final question here. Probably kind of a long question because it's about design mm-hmm. and Eliel's not just its branded line, but also when looking at the work that they've done with ButcherBox, it's cutting edge. It is fun. It includes color, lots of it. Mm-hmm. Where does that ethos come from of just saying, okay, we're going to look at this completely differently. Stock, blank colors, blacks, things like that. We're done with that. We're going to have some fun. Where does that ethos come from? Ultimately, I think it comes from me. I 
have been serious about riding and racing when I was racing and in it, man. I mean, every little detail had to be analyzed. I mean, I studied the races. I watched it as anything I could come upon. You know, I wasn't the most physically talented rider. So, you know, I was always looking for, you know, the edge from whatever, you know, whatever it was, whether it was apparel, my bikes, you know, equipment was always dialed, my training plans, things like that. But then, you know, to me, it's still there's there if, if you're not having fun with what you're doing, you should you, should, you need to rethink what you're doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have a limited time on this planet and I don't want to spend that time not having fun and doing something that I don't love just for the sake of doing it or to get wins or whatever it is, you know, I think there's always, and, and honestly, I think the best performances, you know, come when you're loose and you're having fun, you know, when you've put that work in and that preparation in that time's done and then it's time to execute. And I don't know. I just think that there's, there has to be a mix. If everyone's super serious, I've been on teams that were super serious and, you know, and you kind of get, you know, you know, you got your management yelling at you and this and that, and that never resonated with me. You're not going to get the best out of me. Like I'm harder on myself than anyone else is ever going to be on me. I kind of reject that. If someone's just going to yell at me to try and get me to do something that, that doesn't motivate me, but having a great environment and a supportive environment and knowing that, you know, people, you know, are passionate about it. Like you are, that does motivate me. And so I think that's really where it comes from. You know, I mean, when we're at the office, we have a job to do. Absolutely. And we get it done. I mean, we wouldn't be here if we didn't. But man, when we're walking around the office, you know, we love to be joking around. We love to high five. We celebrate our wins, you know, and I think it's a good environment. And I think that's, you know, why we've been successful. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of No Training Wheels. We're a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. For more information and links to the other incredible shows on the network, go to wideanglepodium.com. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. For more content, follow us on Instagram at No Training Wheels Podcast. And your home for the best in American criterium racing is notrainingwheelspod.com. Join us here next time for more from our Criterium Nation. <laughs>